The following program is a special presentation of the Big Ten Network, produced in association with the University of Iowa. Coming up in this episode, working on the front lines of public health, environmental research for Iowa and the world, Iowa scholars take on consumer debt, and down on the field with the Iowa Spirit Squads, next on Iowa Magazine. What stands between you and illness? From foodborne outbreaks to flu epidemics to environmental contamination, how does society respond to challenges that emerge? The answer is your public health resources. For millions of people in Iowa and beyond, one such resource is the University of Iowa Hygienic Laboratory. Since 1904, the Hygienic Lab has integrated science and service. Today, with programs in disease control, environmental monitoring, and newborn screening, the lab works on many fronts for Iowa's public and environmental health. We work with hospitals, we work with local health departments, we work with the state departments of natural resources and public health. What we have in this laboratory is a central resource of tremendous expertise that is literally providing that expertise at good value, I think, for the people of Iowa. A major area of activity at the lab is the Disease Control Division, which focuses on infectious disease, environmental microbiology, and public health medical screening. In one of its many laboratories, hygienic lab staff provide a range of water quality testing services for Iowa residents. What we're looking for is indicator bacteria. High levels of those bacteria just indicate that you have possibly more of a sanitary defect in your well. The hygienic lab services were in high demand during the historic flood of 2008, which left many water supplies at risk of contamination. The lab's bacteriology program employs the latest science to help identify potentially harmful bacteria that humans may come in contact with. When we isolate the pathogen from a human and they isolate the pathogen from a food, then we do DNA fingerprinting on both of them and that helps us to determine whether or not that particular food is what's causing the illness in the humans. In recent nationwide outbreaks of E. coli and salmonella, the hygienic lab played a key role behind the scenes. Shows like CSI have piqued interest in laboratory work in general. This field is excellent for individuals who enjoy working with instrumentation, who enjoy the challenge of detecting unknown organisms, and behind the scenes fighting to prevent transmission of disease Behind every specimen we do a test on, there's a patient depending on our results. With the recent H1N1 outbreak, University Hygienic Laboratory was one of the first labs outside the CDC to verify its new strain. With expertise across disciplines, the Hygienic Lab is ready to react to such events. The lab's Emergency Preparedness Program coordinates various agencies to respond to natural disasters, environmental contaminations, and infectious disease outbreaks. University Hygienic Lab also protects Iowa's environmental health through partnerships like the Water Quality Monitoring Program at Iowa Lakeside Laboratory, a field station in northwest Iowa. 
This is a great opportunity for the University Hygienic Laboratory to demonstrate that we are very concerned and have always been dedicated to the water quality of Iowa. To better evaluate the impact of human activity on Iowa's natural resources, the lab's Ankeny facility in central Iowa performs a variety of testing services. Iowa's been modified, I think, probably more than any other state as for agricultural uses. Therefore, the waters are going to be impacted, whether it's for drinking water, recreation, for industrial and agricultural use. These are all competing interests for the same resource and so there has to be some kind of a balance. To aid in the process, the Hygienic Lab employs field biologists that monitor the health of Iowa's lakes, rivers, and streams. We have a set of limnologists that go out and they collect certain sites, and that data then is tabulated. Municipalities like um, your wastewater plants, whatever they discharge goes into either a river or a lake. That has to be at a certain level that is set by the DNR because downstream that could be somebody's drinking water. The lab is also a unique academic resource for the university. Because we are among the nation's leading public health and environmental health laboratories, we've got tremendous contributions to make to the university's broader mission of education and training, as well as research. The Hygienic Lab will soon take a big step forward with the completion of a new facility on the UI Research Campus. The new facility is the first of many building projects at UI seeking LEED certification. Combining science and stewardship, the facility will allow the University Hygienic Laboratory to evolve with the changing needs of public health and better serve the people of Iowa. One of the programs that I'm most excited about uh, is associated with our newborn screening uh, program. So I'm really excited about this new laboratory facility allowing us to even more greatly work with the university to understand how we can help uh, prevent childhood disability uh, and in fact lead to better human life. To learn more about the University Hygienic Laboratory, visit uhl.uiowa.edu. Coming up, environmental research for Iowa and the world next on Iowa Magazine. How do we impact the environment? And how does the environment impact us? In the late 1980s, two University of Iowa professors set out to explore these questions. They formed a grassroots center to study our environment in practical and innovative new ways. Their creation was the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research, or CEGAR. They called it at the time the Global Warming Center, but uh, our interests are really much larger than that, much broader. Jerry Schnorr, a UI professor of civil and environmental engineering, co-founded Seeger and serves as co-director alongside Greg Carmichael, professor of chemical and biochemical engineering. Seeger is very special in the U.S. It uh, uh, has a very unique grassroots structure. We're kind of working together on a whole diverse set of interests all related to global and environmental change. 
1990, Iowa legislators incorporated Seeger into the state's Energy Efficiency Act. The bill funds Seeger so it can generate objective research on air quality, wind energy, biofuels, and anything else that affects our environment. The center itself resides at the University of Iowa. Seeger has members from five different colleges and 17 different departments. The center specializes in small exploratory research studies. Oftentimes, if you have a good idea, you need to start working on that idea to generate some preliminary data that will strengthen your grant application. And so that's where the Seeger grants come in. Seeger distributes four to five seed grants per year to promising proposals. This places Seeger's creative powers in the hands of its members. Each individual faculty member is in charge of their own program. And to the extent that we influence their direction, it's subtle rather than direct. We don't say, uh, please study this because it needs to be studied. Rather, I think they see opportunities and our center helps to create the opportunities. From its beginnings, Seeger has emphasized interdisciplinary research that crosses conventional boundaries. The culture of science is more and more interdisciplinary everywhere. People are interested in the connections across very diverse disciplines and it makes some of the most dramatic discoveries occur because of those kind of interactions. Carrie Hornbuckle was one of 10 Seeger members to receive grants from the National Science Foundation to study the 2008 floods in Iowa. Her work reflects Seeger's pledge to study practical, real-world problems that affect the daily lives of Iowans. Grants like these create research opportunities, not only for faculty members, but also for their many students. Our work is grounded in what's actually going on in the environment. So the students learn how to design a study so that they collect samples that can help address a particular question. Though Seeger is a research institute first and foremost, its faculty remain committed to training a new generation of critical thinkers. Today's environmental problems, after all, will be with us for a long time. My role as a researcher, you know, maybe you publish a paper or get a patent or find something new that makes a tiny difference in the world. But the biggest difference that I can make in the world is my students and the impact that they have when they graduate and go out into the world. That's really the, the greatest impact that we can have. And that's certainly true of Seeger as well. To learn more about environmental research at Iowa, visit seeger.uiowa.edu. Coming up, Iowa scholars address consumer debt in America. The major thing that's happened with debt is debt is used to subsidize a lifestyle that people's earnings can't pay for. Next on Iowa Magazine. A decade of prosperity, the longest economic expansion on record. The 1990s to mid 2000s brought profits to Wall Street and affluence to Main Street. Was it the best of times or was it an illusion? As the nation now grapples with an ongoing economic recession, what is the cost to individuals, family, society? University of Iowa scholars recently convened to address questions like these. Borrowing to the Brink, Consumer Debt in America, sponsored by UI's Oberman Center for Advanced Studies, brought together scholars from around the country to address the issues of consumer debt. The seminar was directed by College of Law professor Katie Porter, whose research examines bankruptcy outcomes for everyday Americans. Bankruptcy law has a purpose of giving families a fresh start. 
And we have a lot of discussion in the academic research about a fresh start, but we have very little understanding of what really happens to families after bankruptcy. How you recover, how fresh your start is, depends on what happens to your income. And when income keeps going down, even after bankruptcy's washed away your debts, it's really hard for these families to make ends meet on a going forward basis. The subject of income is a focus for UI sociology professor Kevin Light, who looks at the increasing use of credit as a substitute for income growth. The major thing that's happened with debt is debt is used to subsidize a lifestyle that people's earnings can't pay for. When people's incomes started to stagnate in the 1970s, and especially the earnings of the middle class from jobs, all of a sudden you could lease cars rather than buy them. You could buy cars with no money down, and there were all sorts of interest only in other adjustable rate mortgages you could get for houses. Jerry Anthony, professor of urban and regional planning, examines housing costs as a critical factor in today's economy. The nation has had um, a, a historical problem uh, with high housing costs. Housing prices have outpaced income growth and therefore the percentage of uh, income spent by households for housing has increased consistently over the last three or four decades. The decade of the 1990s was a fantastic opportunity for us to rectify this problem because in the 1990s we saw a phenomenal economic growth. And the fact of the matter is, between 1990 and 2000, housing cost burdens did not go down in spite of the economic prosperity that we had. In combination with stagnant incomes, high housing costs have made the American dream of home ownership an increasingly difficult prospect. Owning a house has been such a central component of the American dream that people have been willing in the United States to do just about anything to own a house. And so people have purchased houses that they can't necessarily afford. But in addition to that, people who have bought houses that they can easily afford have seen their property values drop catastrophically because of the foreclosure crisis. There are a lot of people out there who are saying, I've played by the rules and I made my payments on time, and I'm losing money hand over fist, and this is not fair. Light addresses the cultural damage of consumer debt in post-industrial peasants, the illusion of middle-class prosperity. This world where consumer debt props the U.S. economy up is not really sustainable. People who don't know where their next paycheck is coming from and don't know where they can pay their own debts focus excessively on themselves. And so the Cub Scouts aren't mentored, the baseball teams aren't coached, the bicycle rides aren't taken, the sunsets aren't watched. All of those things that make community life interesting sort of go by the wayside as you do everything in your power to pay off your debts and keep your kid in a decent school. While the plight of the middle class seems increasingly dire, the issues of consumer debt in America are being brought to light as academic work focuses on bankruptcy populations. We can use bankruptcy as a window to see the kinds of problems that plague ordinary, everyday Americans. Sometimes the answer will be regulating credit, cutting back on things like mortgages that are not underwritten for people's real income. And then the other lesson is taking a look at the income side of it. We've had very stagnant wage growth in America for a number of years, and a lot of families have used borrowing to sort of make up for that loss in wage group. So we keep seeing an improved standard of living in America, but a lot of that standard of living has been driven by borrowing. From the community planning perspective, discussion of consumer debt in America can't be separated from the chronic issue of housing costs. Unless we as a nation 
focus on how to reduce housing cost burdens and make housing more affordable, we will have housing foreclosure crises like this and we would have consumer debt crises like the ones we've seen in the recent past. While economic recovery has yet to arrive, continued study of consumer debt can only help us to better understand the private issue of financial distress. Coming up, inside the Iowa Spirit Squads, next on Iowa Magazine. Kinnick Stadium, the home of the Hawkeyes and an unforgiving place for visitors. It's not just Iowa's physical game that wears down opponents. The noise of 70,000 fired up fans will take its toll on any team. And that's exactly what the Iowa Spirit Squads want. The Iowa Spirit Squads consist of the Iowa cheerleaders, which is a co-ed cheerleading team, the Iowa dance team, and the Herky mascots. Our main goal is to get the crowd excited about being Hawkeye fans. In achieving that goal, it's safe to say the Spirit Squads are successful. We have some of the best fans in the country. It's great to start a cheer and have the entire student section work with us and then all the fans join in as well. It, it just makes you feel pretty powerful. <laughs> the student section, I feel like, is almost the beating heart of a stadium. Because they can get so riled up, um, it can really bring up the attitude of the, of the entire stadium, which of course then gives you a home advantage. Giving the team that advantage is no small task. A punishing practice regimen fuels the Spirit Squad's game day efforts. We actually practice every day from 4 to 6. So Monday through Friday we're in the gym. So if we were getting ready for a game day performance, we'd start working on pyramids, we'd work on stunts, the dancing work on their sideline material and their halftime that they do with the band. Between performances, workouts and rehearsals help the team to meet the physical demands of the sport. What cheerleading has become is a lot more athletic in recent years with the partner stunning that they're doing, the pyramids that we're building, and the tumbling that we do, not only on the sidelines, but also at competition. It's taken a greater athlete to be able to do this. Performing each game day with the cheerleaders and mascots are another highly practiced group, the Iowa Dance Team. Most of my dancers have had some type of ballet training since they were very young. Most of them have been dancing since the age of three. So they come on my team with at least 15 years of dance experience, which is a lot. And that definitely shows they have to get through a two minute routine. They're doing so many things within those two minutes. It's basically like a two minute sprint. It definitely requires a lot of strength and a lot of endurance. I definitely do work as hard as like most athletes. We train, we do lifting, we practice. We have the team mentality. We have goals just like any other athletic team does. I work out every day because I mean every day I'm putting a girl above my head and every day I'm catching a girl and that girl's even getting tossed up top of that girl. So it's, it's I mean, it's an intense workout. I think it's fun. It gives you something to do to take your mind off homework. Kind of gives you a reason to procrastinate, which is good. Always looking for that. Spirit Squad members work hard on the field and off as students pursuing degrees in many areas of study. Our team members are required, just like all the other athletes, to maintain a certain GPA in order to be a part of the squad. They're also required to do what PR events, which are community events that the dancers and the cheerleaders and the mascots appear at. With public appearances and major sports through much of the year, the job doesn't end after football and basketball seasons. That's a year-round 
commitment. When these kids try out in April, yeah, they have their summer off, but we're still coming back for practices. They're still working out on their own. We have practice during the summer. We, uh, you know, then we have football season, volleyball season, basketball season. We literally end for about two weeks, and then we have tryouts. While joining this team is a major commitment, the hard work of the Spirit Squads is not overlooked. These uh, students are going to college first and foremost. They go to go to school to get their degrees, uh, and, and they're spending an awful lot of their time and their energy. I know they do a phenomenal job, and I'm sure every one of them involved would tell you it's worth it. The squad members themselves can easily say what makes it all worth it. Like the first time you walk out onto the field, it's amazing. And to be able to just start Iowa or Let's Go Hawks and the whole crowd joins in with you, it's the best feeling in the world. It's definitely overwhelming, but once you get in front of the crowd, you really find yourself like being, have just as much energy as them. Like they, they pump you up just as much as you try to pump them up. And it's really great like having everybody there cheering you on and feeling like that you're really part of the university. It's a really good feeling. It's pretty amazing feeling. The energy from the crowd, during the football games are just, it's, you can't even describe the feeling that you get from it. It's so much fun to be on the field, and that's what I love about cheerleading is, not only do we get to perform, but we're also, it's, it's the best seat in the house. Our team needs a reality TV show. Seriously, there's drama, there's blood, sweat, and tears. We're so serious about everything. The show! Get the show done! It'd be a good show. I'd watch it. For the Spirit Squad coach, the payoff is simply the thrill of being part of the game day experience. Going down to the wire, that's always exciting to see those that are the last play of the game type of thing. Whether it's Iowa up or Iowa down, it's going to be a good game because it's Big Ten. The preceding program was produced by the University of Iowa in association with the Big Ten Network.